Hi, friends. My name is Eric Barnett, and I'm a singer-songwriter from Charleston, South Carolina, and you're listening to Songs of the Unsung. Songs of the Unsung is a podcast where I talk to fellow singer-songwriters about their music, their influences, and their songwriting process. On this week's episode, I have Cincinnati-based blues, roots, and Americana musician John Ford. I've been lucky enough to share the stage with John a couple times in Newport, Kentucky, but back in early February, he was passing through Charleston on his way down to play some gigs in Florida, was kind enough to stop by and have a conversation with me. We had a great time talking about music, blues history, old guitars, and how to make it as a working musician. Enjoy my discussion with John Ford. Hey, John, how's it going? Hey, all right. Thanks for stopping by, man. All right, thank you. Yeah, so John's in town, uh, first time through Charleston, playing some gigs. Unfortunately, came through Charleston at the coldest week on record in a few <laughs> years, so. Of course. Yeah, I don't know if, you know, people tend to not like Ohio too much here for one reason or the next, and they'll blame you for bringing this through, but I know you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to make a joke about that, about, it's like, uh, here I am telling jokes. Yeah, here you go. <laughs> like I was going to say, hey, I'll, uh, you know, it took, it, it took me a while to hitch up the trailer hitch to that cold weather and bring it all the way down here. <laughs> I'll have to use that. <laughs> I'm going to steal that, John. So uh, I first met John playing with Matt Bauman in Cincinnati. We've shared the stage a couple times at the Southgate house. Actually, uh, Newport, Kentucky at the Southgate house. And right across I, the river. Yeah. My, I always, I often tell people that my favorite part of Cincinnati is Newport, Kentucky. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, fantastic blues roots musician, original, and really takes you through the history of blues and roots and folk and, and really, you really have a way of wrapping it all up in a really nice bow for people and presenting it in a Thanks. an incredibly authentic way that I'm that I'm a big fan of. I also do a, try to do a little bit of research on my guests just so I'm not asking incredibly open-ended awkward questions you've heard a thousand times before. But I did notice that um this is not John Ford the director nor John Ford the British musician. Does that ever become an issue for you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not really. The director's long dead, but right. I think uh, the guy from the Straubs. The Straubs, yeah. You know, I get sometimes people are like, now are you from England? <laughs> no, that would be the other guy. That's the other. John, that's one of the other John Fords. And then there's other ones that I know there's one guy that does country music and, yeah. and at least at least a couple others i've i've run across there's so many eric barnett that's not even fair there's a a reggae musician from the 60s really? the guy who wrote the theme song from kickboxer 2 <laughs> and uh a, a guitarist that's about 10 times better than me in california so <laughs> i i it, but it's the kickboxer two thing I get the most inquiries about. Yeah, emails. Love and, that song, man. Yeah, yeah. They're like, <laughs> "Were you the guy that wrote my brother's eyes from Kickboxer 2? I'm 
<laughs> now, if only, if only I could be that guy. <laughs> there are a lot of good resources online to read about John and, and see what he's up to. A lot of really good press you've gotten through the years about shows you're doing. Um, I've noticed that their blues and, and roots and folk is one thing where there's a pretty strong communities about and they're tied to history and they're really interested in folks that come through. And is that something that you've noticed? Um, yeah, I mean, recently, uh, a guy named Scott Morris down in, uh, Florida, uh, who is, uh, I'm not sure, uh, he's connected with the, um, Florida Blues Society or the West Coast Florida Blues Society or something. Yeah. Uh, he, he, you know, he knew I was coming down this time and, uh, you know, gave me a lot of good press and put some posts on fa Facebook and stuff like that. Excellent. Excellent. Always good to have, uh, a community you're going into. I was, I'd hoped I was gonna be a little bit more ingrained in the Charleston blues community and have some more folks coming out and see you. I just don't know the blues folks too well here. Yeah. Well, we met some. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody that came out and saw you loved you. Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about your early musical influences. So you're from New Richmond, Ohio, about 20 miles from Cincy. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and you had mentioned to me, I hadn't, I didn't know kind of exactly what age you are, and I'm not going to tell everybody here, but you had mentioned <laughs> to me that you'd seen Ed Sullivan and watch, watch the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. So that, yeah. that pinpoints it fairly accurately. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say I was four years old. Okay. When, and I remember when seeing the Beatles, and I, both times, I'm pretty sure, because one time I saw them, I guess it was the February yeah. uh, show. And then uh, I just thought they were on Ed Sullivan all the time. Yeah, I thought it was like, yeah. Yeah, because it seemed like every time I watched that show, those Beatles were on. So the really the cultural impact of something is not necessarily something you feel while it's happening a lot of the time either, mm -hmm. you know, especially mm -hmm. not at that age. What were you, what was your first like, experience of music could you do you remember back to what initially got I, you i don't remember but my mother told me when i was three i think three or four uh, i started we started going to the store and buying records yeah and i would just buy any record i guess because i i still have a lot of children's records and uh i would you know she'd buy me a record and then i'd want to go right home and listen to it and start you know throwing a fit so she couldn't get any other shopping done <laughs> so um that's what you know and i don't really remember that but um that's what sh she told me and then you know five or six um some older kids in the neighborhood would play um, beetle records or they had the 45s or something and, and i wound up with the a few of those some kids gave me and awesome so yeah it was it was mostly beatles and then i had a cousin down in kentucky that played guitar and he's about 15 years older than me uh -huh. i think he won't tell me how old <laughs> he is either and uh he he played a lot of like chet atkins and, oh wow and what i later uh came to find out was old folk uh songs um 
like I was when I was a kid, I thought it was just country music, but um, you know, he'd do songs like Freight Train and Okay. Um, you know, just old folk songs like that that uh, I I didn't it wasn't until I started researching like folk and blues music that I was like, "Oh, okay." Yeah, he was playing that kind of stuff, but that wasn't having him come around with guitar that first kind of planted that seed of yeah wanting to learn. Yeah, he was, he lived down in central Kentucky and went, and he lived right by my grandma. So when we would go down to my grandma's house, I would immediately go over to my cousin Bill's house and listen to him play guitar. And I remember he learned to play guitar while he was in the army, I guess. And I remember him playing. The theme from the Bonanza show. Oh, yeah. 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 I thought that was cool. What, when did you start playing? I think I was eight. Uh huh. Um, my mother bought me a guitar, that deck of guitar, I think I was Uh telling you about, with a slotted headstock. Yeah. And, uh, it was like a toy guitar, $15 guitar at Kmart. And, uh, I brought it home and, Immediately wrote my first tune. Really, on the tuning that it came, you know, the guitar was okay. in, in out of the box. I didn't know how to tune the guitar, so I just made up a tune. Yeah, and I remember. I I think I I stole the title from a Herb Alpert uh, a song called "Lonely Bull." Okay, and I was like, eh, this song is called "Lonely Bull." Here's, and I don't know what tuning this is in, but this is what it is. Yeah, know? yeah. Because, I mean, guitars are pretty notorious about, until you know, you know, your Easter bunnies get drunk at Easter or whatever your way of memorizing strings no. are tuned. Like, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's... Now when, I know that. Oh, <laughs> I never John just learned something. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's when you get it, like, <sighs> tuning and then getting over the pain of the fingers and figuring out how to use both hands at the same time. And, but yeah, if, if you, the second you get a guitar, you're like, I'm writing a song that really, that says something your, your parents should have been warned at that point. Yeah. I think my mother was worried. She always, she always said, don't, don't play in those old bars. You'll get killed somehow. (laughs) You'll get shot somehow. (laughs) Now, did you, uh, have somebody kind of teaching you would would your cousin come along and show you a few things and cousin cousin yeah, yeah. showed me a few chords i got a book i got the mel bay yeah book yeah and uh learned how to play some chords from that and bill uh would show me a chord here and there and uh yeah i never really did take guitar lessons i had had piano lessons but never took guitar lessons until i got in my 20s and then i took one from a buddy of mine and you know maybe another one i forget but yeah so learned a lot of bad habits just because you were sort of teaching yourself that yeah yeah. uh, the yeah which the thumb stuff where the thumb comes around on the neck you know and plays the bass strings a lot but you know classic uh, classically i guess that's wrong you're supposed to keep your thumb at the back of the neck or something but you know Whatever, all the my my cousin did that, and you know all the old blues guys did that. So I always my my thing was always, and I I do that as well. And every every time somebody'd say, you know, that thumb really needs to be on the back, and you have to have this arch with your left hand. And 
my moniker has always just been, I saw Hendrix do it, so it's not wrong. <laughs> yeah. But I, that's right. You, man, you really, so you grew up in sort of the heyday of when rock guitar was becoming yeah. really a thing. Yeah. Uh, and was it blues from the get go or was it rock and then? No, it was, it was, it was pop music. Yeah. Like, I guess any, everybody. Um, yeah, it was, it was a song, songs of the 70s, 60s and 70s. Uh -huh. And uh, and I remember I, uh, a couple guys, a couple brothers that lived up the road would come and get me. I think it was 14. And I had an electric guitar, but it was, uh, it was a Hagstrom or something. Oh, yeah. It was like a cheap Hagstrom. And I, uh, I wasn't playing with a pick then, you know, I was just finger picking. Yeah. electric and then i soon realized that man to get that kind of chunk chunk yeah. uh, uh and do bar chords and stuff i needed to to use a pick so i think at, at that after after that experience uh i started to use a pick so. did you have like a band that you were playing in at the time high school band and stuff or man that for um when i was 14 those guys i think they they kind of dropped me and started another band <laughs> and i wasn't really in a band until 16 uh-huh and then uh my best friend's older brother um he had a guitar and we started a band between you know some he i think he was out of high school at that point and then but some other guys in high school um uh we had a keyboard player and uh my friend that lived like three houses down was the drummer and uh, so we had a little four piece and I think I played acoustic, acoustic guitar. Okay. Uh, and we did, you know, we tried to do, um, whatever, like some, I remember doing some bread songs and, and some Peter Frampton songs okay. and uh, that kind of stuff. Were you writing your own stuff through this time? Uh, at 16, my, uh, my best friend, Ed, his older brother, Sean, who I was talking about it. He said, I used to go over to his house and practice, and he said, you know, he gave me this speech about, you're never going to make any money <laughs> playing other people's songs. Right. So I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. So we started writing then. I can't remember anything we wrote. But. It's wild. These days I get the opposite speech. You're never going to make any money yeah. playing your own song. <laughs> I've heard that too. Yeah, yeah. isn't it weird how things come full circle? Yeah. When did... um. When did you actually start gigging? Was it with that four piece or was, were you doing solo stuff or? Oh, uh, let's see. I guess with the, with the band, with the first band and we called it, the, that was when, that was when, you know, in the set mid, mid to late seventies, when all the bands were like Chicago and Kansas. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, so we named ourselves Alaska. <laughs> okay. We were Alaska. All right. And I think we had one gig <laughs> at, you know, the sister-in-law, some, somebody's sister-in-law's uh, New Year's Eve party. Yeah. And then after that, uh, Sean and I did a couple uh, duo things. And then I wasn't in r a real serious band until I was 18. And then we started doing uh, uh, some high school dances and some weddings. We ruined a lot of weddings. <laughs> <clears throat> Yeah. Uh, like when I first, I wouldn't even call them gigs the first time that me and 
four people that I made noise with would go make our noise in front of other people. But it was always, <laughs> yeah. you were, tr you're always like trying to cobble together P a PA or like trying to yeah. run into the second channel of an amplifier and yeah. end up shocking yourself. Cause you didn't know how any of that worked. And we, <laughs> yeah, Sean, Sean and I played together through the same, um, uh, it was a casino amp. Yeah. And I didn't know it, but, we blew that amp up and the, we took it to the shop and the guy's like, yeah, you really shouldn't play two guitars through one amp. Okay. Yeah. 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 And then we had this old silver tone amp, which I didn't even know it was a silver tone at the time. It was just this big old block looking amp with about three knobs on it. And this great big old, it was one of those custom uh, cabinets with like one or two 15s yeah. in it with the padding on it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. somebody had spray painted it and, another color i forget what it was and put a light put like some christmas lights in, in it somehow to where it was you know it's like a disco uh, yeah speaker or something oh yeah and um and we use that that was our pa oh, that's you know? awesome yeah it's it's finding that it's finding the thing that works i when i was in high school our my school the marching band had this like PV used to make these big giant kind of keyboard amps that would have the multiple inputs in and they had this big giant PV amp that I'm saying they let us borrow this. I don't know what the statute of limitations mm. on it. It's been at least 25 <laughs> years, but whenever we wanted to play anything, all of a yep. sudden that keyboard amp would be missing from the band room yep. for the weekend. And same here. Yeah. <laughs> been there done. Yeah. We used to, you were talking about a, a Fender Bassman. Yeah. Thing, the other day with four tens in it. Yeah. And they had one of those. It was they used it as a bass amp. And it had uh -huh. it had the casters with the wheels on it too. Yeah. Just just like you were saying the other day. And it um and yeah, it was the same deal there. You know, it's like anytime we needed any kind of amp, it was at my house. Some it, somehow yeah. it showed up yeah. at my house or oh yeah. <clears throat> somebody else got it. It's wild. Those those actual fender basements truly are horrible bass amps. Yeah, I mean, yeah. four 10 inch speakers four and it's yeah. kind of low wattage tube and, yeah. but fantastic guitar amps. Yes. But at the time when you're that age, you don't realize that the things you're holding on to are going to be when you're yeah. 40 and 50, you're like, oh my God, what? Because all, when I, when I had started playing guitar, all I wanted was distortion. Like I thought like, too. I want distortion and this old. I had an old harmony amp and I had an old silver tone amp wow. and there was a time that I had a, like a 65 fender reverb, but it didn't have distortion in it. Yeah. So I was, I was like, Oh, you know, this little PV amp has a button that says distortion. And I was like, I'm That's not even so interested cool. in overdrive. I want distortion. Yeah. And yeah. But then That's now you're like, I'd I'd kill for that one knob silver tone. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And all the all the older guys at the music store would say, "You need this amp," and I'd yeah. be like, "Well, it doesn't have distortion." You know? Yeah, I'm yeah. gonna pick this amp. This other yeah, amp. And like okay. Yeah, and then I was I was there at just the right age that all of a sudden people are like, "Oh, you know, this digital pedal has." all these amplifiers in it and you're like oh that's so cool and then it's so efficient if yeah. i could have saved all the money from the hot garbage i tried to buy and just held on to all the stuff and 
that's part of it. That's part of getting wisdom. When did the blues come in to come into play? I'd always done um, blues tunes, I guess, but I I didn't. Um, hang on, <clears throat> voice is going. You're good. <laughs> um, but I guess um, we would do like one, you know, one blues tune. Um, I'm trying to think of what that would have been. Maybe Jimi Hendrix's Red House or okay. something, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. We can do that one, but yeah. that's it, you know. And, you know, when you're young, I don't know. I always thought, you know, blues is all right. I can, I could always kind of sing it, but it's, it's only three chords. And it's, yeah. it's like, man, that would get boring if you did like two blues songs. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, so you think in those terms and, you know, you want to do something more complicated to show that you have all this you know, musical knowledge. And, uh, and then, uh, yeah, I didn't get in really the blues bug didn't hit me till really late. Yeah. I would say about 15 years ago, um, almost more like 20 now, but when Ray Charles died, uh, they made that movie with Jamie Foxx called yeah. Ray. And, uh, I got, I wound up getting the soundtrack to the movie or something. I think that's what it was. And, uh, just really listening to Ray Charles' voice. And I fell in love with Ray Charles' voice. Man, I was like, man, that guy can sing. Yeah. And uh, from there, basically, I got into the the black voice. And yeah. from there, it went to, uh, you know, uh, Brownie, Brown, Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee. And, uh, you know, I started noticing all the inflections of, of, of these old blues folk singers and then from you know from there it went to robert johnson muddy waters howlin wolf and then i got into you know the real classic uh, blues guys and uh um yeah then i you know started learning about the history of it and everything and then i you know just got into it so much but it started with with Ray Charles, maybe I, I'll back up a little bit. I was the band I was in. We started doing some Almond Brothers. Okay, so you know I, I I was doing a few Almond Brothers tunes, but it really didn't click in until I really paid attention to Ray Charles. I feel like a lot of people's conception blues is a very loaded term, and it, it yeah. tends to point people in a specific direction. Like even your website is johnfordblues.com. and you know, when I tell folks, when I was telling folks you were coming to town, I was like, okay, blues, but not your Chicago, not your Chicago electric one, four, five blues. That's, yeah. and you know, not, not to knock on that. It's his own thing. I like it. Yeah. Uh, when I was, when I was young, I was right at that age when Nirvana did their MTV unplugged and they finished with a lead belly tune. Where'd you sleep last night? And I was I was really into that, and it got me interested. Maybe I ought to look this Lead Belly guy up if Kurt Cobain likes him. I let's see what he's about. Yeah, and I I I was like, wow, this is like, this isn't BB King. This isn't, yeah. you know, my baby left me. You know, <laughs> I'm I'm, and then uh, I remember we went to. Uh, I was in the high school jazz band, and we went to D.C. For a, for a trip and part of that visit is we went to the Smithsonian 
And that was like right in the mid nineties when they did that big, um, it was some sort of blues exhibition. And I bought this compilation that had lead belly on it. And then that's when it had, it had, you know, Sonny Terry, it had, it had lightning Hopkins on it. It had all the kind of acoustic more, you know, the Delta, the Mississippi Delta acoustic yeah. stuff. And I was like, this isn't, well, no, 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 you know, and that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and this is country blues, country blues. Absolutely. And I hate to use that term a lot of times. And I, because I, it, it, I used to think country blues was like country music, but a little on the Sadder. bluesy side. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it's like, no, no, it's, it's just rural. Um, yeah. Delta blues, um, folky blues, um, Country does owe a, a huge debt to the blues, especially to those, you know, field song, folk song oh, yeah. blues. I'm and so a, a lot of people look at like the blues also did a thing where it went to England and and all those guys really started getting into muddy waters and getting it, but that's more kind of electric blues, you know, Clapton and and even the Rolling Stones wanted to be a blues band. Yeah. But were. that's when people think of the blues, I I feel like they immediately go to that and not to man when when I see yeah. you play Roots is very appropriate because it's it's blues, it's folk, it's acoustic, it's solo. You know, on, on your recordings you have upright bass and you have drums and you have some piano here and there and harmonica and things but to me it's very like going through the south it could be the soundtrack of a of a ken burns documentary or it could be a <laughs> yeah <laughs> a coen brothers movie you know yeah yeah awesome. <laughs> yeah the um i think a lot of people i know what you're saying i think a lot of people um when they think of blues, um, unless they're ninety years old, they, you know, they their first experience of the blues was Eric Clapton or John Mayhall. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they think of uh, electric guitar players, and it's kind of like if you go to, um see like the blues uh what do they call it the ibc or the blues contest yeah that every blues society has it's i always kind of viewed that as more of a guitar fest where yeah. it's like these yeah. it's whoever can play the fastest guitar yeah it's blues but it's still um electric guitar based and it's who can play the the coolest and the fastest and um yeah that that tends to be the definition of the blues, whereas I think of it as, yeah, it's like to, the real blues to me is is some guy in Mississippi sitting down at a at an old bar and playing a guitar that's barely held together, you know, or, <laughs> yeah. it, you know, it's not the best guitar. And I see like a lot of uh, probably um, rub some people the wrong way, but, you know, so people that have a lot of, uh, uh, they have 12 guitars and, uh, 
you know, they're all just immaculate and, yeah. and the greatest. Whereas, like, you know, the guys that I've seen play would have like a Hondo two guitar, yeah, and it would be pink sparkle. You know, you know, <laughs> they probably got it at a pawn shop, and yeah, it was probably the cheapest one they could get, and right. it was like, uh, you know, I'll take this one, and it was a T Model Ford, the blues singer T Model Ford. Um, I used to play this old PV. I don't know what it was. It was like an Explorer, you know. Yeah. I mean, it definitely looked like a, a heavy metal guitar, but yeah, that was probably all that was in the pawn shop that day, or whatever, you know. Yeah, I remember. Uh, when I was in college, I'd taken a class on, the, the class itself was just called The Aesthetics of Black Music. And it was, a, it was an elective in the, in the school of music that I was in. And they brought a, a blues guitarist out of Toledo. And man, I, for the life of me, I can't remember his name. Blind guy, and he had two jazz masters, two just of the oldest jazz masters. And one of them, he had all these like nickels glued to it. Oh, wow. And I'm just like, why do you, do, why, you know, is that part? At the time, I'm 18. Is that part of the sound? Like, nah, it's, I'm blind. I can tell which one's which. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. 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 Wow. And then uh, I just remember at the time I was so into gear and, oh, I have to have this and that and this and that. And he came in with a little one knob, probably five watt amp that looked like it was about to blow. And, yeah plugged in and with the with one amplifier and a guitar and he just to be able to go with a, this minimal thing that like you said isn't the newest isn't the best it's what they could get their hands on and what they can afford and that's probably what's putting food on their table mm -hmm. you know and and that's that's a special thing you know yeah i've had a guy uh the guy does a lot of my guitar work said he was down in memphis and he so the best guitar sound that he heard was some guy in the street playing through a uh, like an old p uh, an old pa head you know into this like uh custom uh pa column or something you know just something thrown together and he said that was the best guitar sound he'd heard the whole time he was in memphis and it's like he's like it, it comes from the hands you know oh yeah and yeah, so much of that is just him playing through that rig all the time. Yeah. And just working and getting a sound right. And we've been like geeking out about yeah, guitarists. When you get them together, they're always going to talk about guitars and performers are always going to talk about their PA and how they tweak yeah. it and whatnot. So we've been talking about that. And the point is you have to just have experience with whatever rig you decide on and figure out how to milk the most that you can milk out of it and sound like you on it. Yeah. So that, that being said, John, he drives in with a car that is just loaded to the gills, uh, two speakers, four guitars. But when he sets it up, it's, you can, you can hear why it's all there. I mean, I travel, I, I'm always buying a new thing and in search of, oh, I'll sound good once I get this without actually going, you know, I need to just to sound, decide upon a thing and then figure out how to sound good on it. But uh, yeah, man. And then uh, kind of had a little fun because 
He's also being his own tech. John was in here working on <laughs> tearing a harmonica yeah. apart and ripping a guitar apart and putting a toothpick in it. And yeah, you gotta have toothpicks in the guitars. <laughs> yeah, that's like that's like I told uh, Eric. I said, "You ain't a true blues man until you start putting toothpicks in, you, in right. your guitars to hold them together." I don't think you're truly a gigging musician unless you know how to work on your own equipment. It's like owning a motorcycle. You can't own mm -hmm. a motorcycle without becoming a motorcycle mechanic. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, albums, man, you've got as, as far as I can tell, uh, one full length, three EPs. Um, first one, yeah. uh, it, is there more that I just don't know? No, that's, <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah, you know more than I do. I forgot about the first one. The Injection of the Blues? Yeah, I forgot yeah. about that one. So I, I think I, I, I printed about 50 copies of that one and then sold all those and never did reprint it, but I think it's online. Yeah, yep. And then the, uh, uh, the, the live album, the latest one, I've sold out of it and I don't, I, I'm just going to, I'm just going to make another one. I don't think I'm going to reprint that one. But yeah, the the full length one, it's called the John Ford Blues Society. Yeah. I still got copies of that and I still have copies of the um the five song EP uh Songs from Room 414. That one was that's a pretty neat one cuz you actually recorded that where Robert Johnson recorded. There's not a whole lot of Robert Johnson out there. What 20 29 27 or 29, I yeah. forget. Yeah. And then 16 of Tracks. them were recorded in the room you recorded. Yeah. Now, is that still like a working hotel? As far as I know, it's been 10 years, uh -huh. almost 10 years since we went down in October of 2012. My wife and I drove down there and I have a buddy uh, that lives in uh, San Antonio. His name's Jason Armstrong and he used to, uh, he's a drummer and he used mm -hmm. to, we used to play in a band together and he knew somebody that worked at the hotel or something and kind of put me in contact with them and i was able to you know get a, a couple rooms in that hotel um yeah uh actually rented uh room 414 and yeah. room 413 because room room 413 has a bed in it and <laughs> 414 does not it's like a sitting room okay and uh, yeah we went down uh, uh and i took an old uh reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder and uh, that's not how robert johnson recorded but it was you know it was the closest thing i could get i guess yeah uh this old it, it was a tube i still have it i don't know if it works but it's a tube uh reel-to-reel -reel, quarter inch reel-to-reel -reel, and um Took a mixing board and uh -huh. and and a couple mics and uh, went down there and sat in the in the corner where Robert Johnson sat. You can you kind of find this stuff online about where he sat, you uh -huh. know, and what room it was and all that. And uh, sat, tried to get as close as I could to where he would have been and how they would have recorded. He they recorded him and he faced the corner of the room. And there's different theories on why he did that. Some uh -huh. say he was kind of hiding from the other musicians in the room and didn't want them to see how what he was playing and okay. how he was playing. And then other people say 
he was doing a thing called corner loading, which gave the guitar a little bit more bass end, I think. Okay. Pointing it into the, Interesting. the, the corner. And uh, yeah, recorded um, a bunch of songs down there and kind of uh, whittled them down to five songs. And I remember when we got there, because I mean, it's a big old, old grand hotel. Yeah. And it reminded me of the, ho the, the hotel in The Shining. Okay. Yeah. So when we walked down the hall, I'm like, ooh, man, this kind of looks a little scary. <laughs> and the, there was a lady that was helping us with our, our bags. You know, she was, I think she was pulling the cart with all our luggage on it and guitars and all. And I said, yeah, I wanted to get here earlier in the day. I said, it's already like five o'clock or four or five o'clock. And I said, we'll get, we're, you know, we're not, I'm not going to get anything done today. And she's like, oh, you got plenty of time. She said, the spirits don't come out till midnight. <laughs> this is great. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> is it now? Was that one of those places where, uh, I was kind of talking about how I'd gone through Muscle Shoals, Alabama and been in the studio that all these like classic songs are recorded in. And I'm, I am definitely not a superstitious guy at all, but just being in there and looking over and seeing the equipment and just being in the space, I did feel something, man. I felt there's a, a yeah. mojo or I don't know what you want to call it, but did you feel that? All, all I've, all after that, she said the spirits don't come out till midnight and I was facing the corner every, <laughs> every sound that my wife made in the other room i'd jump and turn around and <laughs> figure it was robert johnson coming to say what are you doing here yeah what gives you the right yeah yeah that's awesome man that's very cool the uh you happy with the, the way it turned out and everything oh uh certain aspects you know you always um yeah are you able to go back and listen to things you've done before and actually be objective about it or is it like i try <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm terrible about it i'll go back and I, I can't listen to it i'll be like oh god yeah burn it all yeah <laughs> yeah but i'm kind of like that too yeah. and i think everybody is because sure. you watch uh i watched uh something where uh, paul mccartney and it was back when george harrison was still alive and it was where the three beatles you know minus john lennon had yeah. had met they they were together with george martin and they were yeah. going over the tracks and you know george martin was sitting there pulling up single single tracks and i noticed uh man i think it was on golden slumbers uh, -huh. uh paul mccartney's kind of like the, the the camera's on him and 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 he kind of sings along uh on a certain point in that song he's like kind of mouthing the words and he kind of cringes really? and yeah because and i know it was because of something he some note he hit or something that yeah. he didn't like and he was just like mm, you know give it oh, the cringe man. like oh and golden slumbers of all track that's that's like one where yeah. I, my brother and i are huge beatles fans and we yeah. will talk we'll even talk about that we've talked about that song for oh, yeah. i mean to us like Part of what I haven't liked about this Let It Be documentary that comes out is I don't want to see my heroes argue and make mistakes. Oh, yeah. So I, I, we actually haven't watched the whole thing just because it's like, let me have them on their pedestal. But yeah, it's 
if if Paul McCartney can't even go back and and look at what he's done, we should feel. I'm. I mean, maybe not feel better about what we've done. We're not Paul McCartney, <laughs> but I mean, I think I think he does. Uh, like in the whatever that is that I just watched, McCartney three, three two, two one, one. the yeah. three two one. Um, um, you know he does um, like you know a lot of the stuff he did that he points out to Rick Rubin, you know, and yeah. Rick Rubin's standing there going, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah this is awesome." <laughs> and uh, you know he does like uh, McCartney does you know yeah you know this is I like doing this and but yeah what I guess what I'm saying is yeah there is one song that at least you know that it's kind of true with everybody that. It's hard to listen to yourself. Yeah. I know Mick Jagger always says he can't listen to stuff. Yeah. I'm very leery of people that think everything they do is gold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know anybody that I think that thinks that. But. Yeah. The full length record, the John Ford Blues Society. That sounds like a true studio production. Where would, where'd you record that one at? Oh, in uh, Chris Warner's living room. <laughs> okay. Well, Chris, you you done good, dude. Yeah, we uh, we started. I think a lot of the. I think we started doing just solo stuff, and then I wanted to put drums on it after the fact, and yeah. and some other stuff after the fact, which uh, I probably shouldn't done. Shouldn't have done. You know. I guess if I was doing it again, <laughs> the thing is, like, I I just read something where Keith Richards said, you know, you record with everybody in the room at the same yeah, time yeah. and all that stuff. It's hard to go through. It's a, it's the hardest thing is to do drums after. Yeah. Uh, well, if you're if you're not going to have everybody in a room and you're going to build it up the way that you know modern production is done, yeah. it, uh, and the way I do because I I don't have any friends so i just play everything by myself no i can't i'm hard to work with is why so i just play everything by myself and i start with drums and but it doesn't it doesn't capture people in a room uh yeah i although when i listened to your record i thought it was people in a room so yeah, right. you did you did good <laughs> all right who's playing on that record with you oh man um rick howe um is the harmonica player uh -huh. on most of the stuff. I think I did one harmonica part and uh, uh, Johnny Cole plays drums and he plays a little uh, dobro slide. He's actually a dobro player for the Cincinnati Blues or the Cincinnati Bluegrass All-Stars. Okay. That's what it is. And um, who else? Um Now I can't think of everybody's name. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. It's hard when things go digital. Uh, Chris you, Chris Warner played the up, upright bass okay. on all of it, and then uh, now I'm blanking on the keyboard player's name. I think that was it, though. Yeah, I can't think of his name. We <laughs> got a lot of good reviews on the record, man, and that, and for a reason. It's a great record. It's it's my attempt at doing blues, although it's not all blues. It's but that I guess that's me. Uh, some of it's really folky. Yeah, uh, like the track "Rare Rabbit Blues" is almost bluegrass. Yeah. Um, the last track, uh, 
I don't want to fade away is like uh, not, you know, it's, I, I would say, singer-songwriter kind of stuff. And so it's kind of all over the place. And uh, like the last year or two, I've tried to record and and get together a another album that's more streamlined and more just my kind of blues. Yeah. Um, but... We got into a situation. I was recording with my friend Billy Allitzhauser, and um, or he was recording me, yeah. and we just did me solo again. And there were and then there were some tracks that I I was thinking, no, this this needs to be a band. And yeah. So I recorded a few things with him, and we never did do an album. But uh, hopefully down the road here, and once I if I can get uh, some guys together and do more of a band a thing on on about three tracks then we'll have something but awesome awesome the the last thing and i actually this isn't anywhere digital and you said it kind of sold out of the live at moorhead state yeah yeah and you, and you said you were thinking about doing another live about live album that'll sort of replace it is what you're thinking about or become the the new one that goes around yeah we we could i uh that one was just a recording that was made by the university because they record oh, everything okay. that's done in that particular recital hall and so um yeah i just took it and put what six i think it was six songs i can't even remember six songs um you know that i thought were pretty good that kind of showcases my buddy uh, Glenn Ginn, who is the professor of jazz studies, I think that used to be his title, um, and he—it's—it still is, but I think he's doing some other stuff there too. Um, he, him on guitar, and uh, Ryan McGillicuddy on bass, and these guys are just fabulous musicians. And uh, the one guy that um, that I was really uh, digging on the live recordings was a guy named jesse wells who plays fiddle and some mandolin and uh it's hard to get him anymore because he's yeah. playing with tyler childers now so, wow okay yeah. excellent so right now you're you're on tour as it were like you're pretty much headed uh -huh. to headed to florida stop off in charleston yeah, I came down to supposed to do a gig in Black Mountain, uh, North Carolina, and it got canceled because of snow. And uh, played a couple dates in Raleigh, and then came here and played uh, played three gigs, I think. Three, four, four, yeah, yeah. four. Yeah, uh, and then uh, I I had a gig tomorrow in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, but it it got canceled because of uh, I think the owner got COVID and. Um, so you know, a couple cancellations, and then yeah. So, so today I'm heading to Florida. Um, I'm doing a week's worth of gigs down there, and staying with my buddy uh, Joe Smothers down there. And yeah, well, I'll be back in Cincinnati. I think on the 10th of February. What? Well, that's a that's a whirlwind, man. That's we know when people people in general have a notion of a touring musician and i'm sure that exists for one percent of the population or the population of touring musicians where you know there's a bus and there's a roadie and yeah and touring musicians get to wake up from their 
really nice hotel room at three in the afternoon and walk in and <laughs> get handed a tuned guitar and walk out on stage to a ton of screaming fans and then get some catering and then take the limo back. But I, and I, and I, and I know some people experience that and good on them, but I think the, the life of a most working touring musicians includes a lot of a lot of cars, a lot of miles, a lot of f fast food. <laughs> Hopefully not that much. Hopefully, yeah. I can't take that anymore. Right? But yeah, I, I, um, I know some people that, you know, are with uh, bands and are, uh, you know, have to get on the tour bus. I don't have to do that, and I feel lucky um, because... I don't know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, you know, if you have an agent or if you have a record company booking you, yeah, yeah, you're you're probably playing better places. You're probably playing, um, you know, making more money. I don't know, maybe not. But <laughs> uh, what my, my point is, if you have somebody else booking you, yeah, uh, and the and they're making money from it, they're going to book you where they make the most money or yeah. where the most money is generated. And, you know, it can be good for you monetarily, but uh, a lot of times it's like driving eight, 10 hours a day yeah. to the bigger city, to the bigger gig, to the bigger venue. And so I try to limit my driving to like four or five, maybe six hours, um, in a day where if I'm, you know, if I'm driving and have to play that night, I don't like to drive oh, any yeah. more than four, maybe five hours. Um, and at least stay in a place for a little bit too, like kind of do yeah. it somewhat regionally where it's not like it's that four to six every day. Yeah. 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 But I think that's the difference. And I'm, I book myself. So yeah. I try to book um, you know, to where the driving is minimal and I know, you know, I, where I can stay with friends or, you know, yeah, something like yeah. that. And, uh, you don't get burnout cause everybody talks about, you know, getting burnout on the road. And, yeah. uh, I don't know. I think I, I, I think I do it, uh, in a way that, that makes me happy. Uh, not to say that, yeah, it'd be nice to have, uh, somebody doing your booking, an agent or somebody yeah. manager or somebody doing your booking for you. Cause it does take up yeah, at least 50% of my time. You sure. Know? Well, it takes up a lot of time, but still, um, um, yeah. If you could find somebody that really had your best interest in heart, you know, at heart and, yeah. and, and not going, I'm going to make a lot of money off this guy. Let's see, let's book him in Atlanta, then Chicago the next day. And then, <laughs> yeah. you know, well, it also one, one thing that just knowing you, and even just if, if I just saw you play as a musician and I came and saw you play like, Oh, the word that pops to mind first is authenticity. and. Mm -hmm. And I know that <laughs> you're probably too humble to say like, oh yeah, that's the point of it. But you, you don't want to risk trading your authenticity for anything. It's, it seems like to me, that's, that's been a important thing is staying true to, 
the music that you enjoy doing and yeah yeah that's true i think i've always kind of done that um yeah. to where i i tend to do um i mean back you know back when i was 18 and and you had to learn certain songs to play um you had to learn the popular songs and there were songs that just worked yeah better and so all the bands played them and i'm sure that's the way it is today everybody knows those songs 100 that work yeah yeah and but now um i'd say for the last 10 15 years i i pretty much do what i fall in love with i just i can't do a song just because it's popular right uh, i do uh, you know man because every one of the songs i do now at one point i just i fell in love with the song and i just went i have to do this song this is yeah. such a great song i have to do this and um well, what you're able to do is something that you know i i aspire to one day where you're always going to have people coming up requesting whatever their song is. And, uh, and you've figured out how to, you'll, I, I've heard you play some stones and I've heard you play some almond brothers and it, but you never play it like trying to say, I'm going to try to sound like the stones or I'm going to try to sound like it has yeah, to fit, make it your own. Yeah. yeah it has yeah. to fit in what you're doing. And you found a way to, to make, a 1930s blues standard, an original, even song singer songwriter roots folk, an Almond Brothers tune, and and you've you found a way to to make these all your own and make it work together, and and that's no small feat. And when right. somebody can some come and request something, and you can say, "Listen, this is sort of what I do," but if you can be a little open-minded with me. I'll try to hit something in, in the middle ground that you'll like, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 And it, it works, well, man. Kudos. Well, thank Kudos. you. Thank you. But, um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. You know, you try to say, well, I don't know that song, but here's kind of something in that. Yeah. Down that road or, you know, something. Um, the best I can offer people is when, when people ask me, I know what I look like. So I get a lot of Zach Brown requests. I, I own a mirror and I, <laughs> I, I honestly, I don't, I don't know any Zach Brown, but I do know Zach Brown plays into the mystic by Van Morrison. Cause I accidentally saw the Zach Brown band once and I'll be like, listen, I don't, I know Zach Brown plays this, this, and you, you figure out, you figure out a way to throw somebody a bone without really feeling guilty that you're selling your soul yeah <laughs> like when if i get a request for like last night i got a request for merle haggard well i i do um <coughs> excuse me i do a uh towns van zant song poncho and lefty yeah and uh you know i can really dig uh, uh towns van zant for sure um but you know, it's like I know Willie Nelson and, and Merle Haggard had a hit with that song, so you know I can do that, and the person that requests it can go, yeah, that's Merle Haggard. I, I love that, you know, and it's country, you know. But really, it's T Towns Van Zandt, whatever, yeah. whatever yeah. you want to call him. I, sure. I don't know. I guess he's 
somewhat country. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's figuring out how to like be in the same lane is what they're, yeah. they're looking for. Yeah. Um, I know that just like most working musicians I've talked to, the, the pandemic really through the brakes on everything. I did notice you were doing a, a live stream. You were doing the blues kitchen. Yeah. That was pretty cool. I, I think everybody I like had to learn a few new tricks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I like doing that. I just didn't really have the equipment. My yeah. phone's like this old. <laughs> it's Abraham Lincoln's phone. And, uh, and uh, just yeah, I don't know, some technical problems with the the Wi-Fi in our house, and you know, yeah. always always being, you know, it's best and all that stuff. Um, I found that to be a challenge. I, I like doing the shows, but uh, yeah, I just I just did them for I don't know a while, and I figured they're they're still on YouTube, and yeah. people can watch them. And... Yeah, I'm. I actually watched. I watched a few live when you were doing them, I remember. Oh. And then I just this week I kind of went back and saw a couple like one you were I think your wife was like in there like running the blender. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> those were those were the best. Yeah. That was like uh Pam would be in there cooking and that's why I called it the blues kitchen because yeah. I was like I was right there while she was cooking cuz uh, during that spring, you know, in 2020, she was a uh, she was cooking meals for people and stuff, yeah. you know, because nobody knew if they could get out and, you know, and go to the store. And we would get, we would uh, get big shipments of uh, vegetables brought in and people would, you know, come in and buy the vegetables off of us. And I don't know, all kinds of things we did. And uh, yeah, her being in the, in the, in the kitchen at the same time just made it real, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, Authenticity, man. Yeah, yeah. Back to it. It's like here we are, and she's running the blender, <laughs> and I can't hear, but we're gonna just plow on ahead with this anyway, you know. When it comes to your songwriting, yep. You know, uh, most people ask like, "What comes first, the words or the music?" I, mm. I, I've what I've found personally is. Well, I'll, I'll ask you, do you have a template or do you have to just kind of stand out there with a bug net and catch it as it goes by? The, the, I like to get an idea for the song first, but that rarely happens. Yeah. I have tons. I think, I think a lot of people used to do it this way. I have tons of cassette tapes okay. of me in my 20, teens and 20s of just, you know, playing chords and humming a melody uh -huh. so the the it it's more natural for the melody to come first for uh -huh. me but then it's always harder to to get a song a lyric so i i like when i have an idea for the lyric first and then i can kind of write the the chords and the melody around that but, now, do you regularly set a time that you sit down and you say, no, I'm going to write songs right now? No. <laughs> no. Yeah. Don't you wish you had the time like that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wish. Uh, a lot of times, uh, if I have an idea, I'll work on it on the road. I'll just take my phone out and, oh, yeah. and just try to think of lines. Um, what was one? I um, My song, Daddy's Old Blues, which isn't on an album. I yeah. shouldn't use it as an example, but... <laughs> 
Well, I just, you know, I, I basically wrote it on the road. Um, a line would come and then I'd just say that into my phone or sing it into my phone and then turn it off and then think about it again and drive a few more miles and then the, ne the next line would come, you know. So um, that works. And then, yeah, sometimes it's like I got this, I got this idea. And the last song I think I wrote was, man, I, w I just wanted to write a song with, a, with I, I wanted to write a song like Bob Dylan would and, and just have like 10 verses. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't yeah. think it worked. I don't know if it worked <laughs> out or not, but because certain songs kind of lend themselves to that, to that and certain songs don't. But uh, that song, I I did kind of sit down and go, okay, I'm I'm gonna take three hours and and oh. go in in my my office upstairs and and try to write. So that one was kind of deliberately done. I think Bob Dylan isn't he kind of notorious for he will continue to tinker. That doesn't he like continue to swap out words and verses and. I he, he does I know he does I saw him um I think was it January of 2020 or I don't know it was just you know a couple of years ago yeah uh I saw him up in Columbus Ohio and um yeah he did a version of uh blowing in the wind that you didn't even know it was blowing in the wind yeah. until he said blowing in the wind sure it was sure. A totally different melody totally different chords i might have seen him on that same tour did he have he had the band with him and did he touch a guitar no right played on keyboards piano. the whole yeah played piano the whole time and yeah. he, mavis staples open up for him oh i don't yeah i don't know that if he had awesome. an opener when i saw him but she opened up man oh, that was awesome man. her her band was awesome. oh i can imagine yeah. oh yeah yeah bob dylan's one of those where i never got to I only saw him recently and I've only seen him once. Same here. And it, it was for us, it was one of those where every single song, it wasn't immediately apparent what song it was. Right. right. You know, maybe if you were a real aficionado and you'd listen to bootlegs and you kind of knew what direction mm -hmm. they were going. But and one, one thing I learned from that is I, there were actually people there who were disappointed that he wasn't picking up a guitar and doing the, doing a Bob Dylan impersonation. Yeah. But one thing I took away from it is, man, he's been playing these songs for 60, yeah. 60 years. Yeah. He can do whatever the hell he wants. He's Bob Dylan. Yeah. Like, and if, and if it's, if he finds new things in an old song, it's his prerogative. Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah. Neil, it's kind of like Neil Young, uh, yeah. who just constantly changes like that. And who actually got sued by David Geffen yeah. for not right. writing Neil Young songs. <laughs> Yeah, so then he leaned into it even more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, now, when you start writing a song, do uh, I know when you play things, more often than not, you're playing solo, you're tapping yeah. a foot, playing a harmonica, playing a guitar. Yeah. Now, when you start writing things, do you hear arrangements? Do you hear other instruments and say, this is kind of where I want to go with it? Or do you find yourself in a situation where somebody comes along and then they do something and you go, yeah. Oh yeah. That I find, I, I write and sometimes I hear things that I, you know, oh man, electric piano would sound great on this yeah. or something like that. And, but a lot of times, you know, it, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't have a band per se. And, yeah. uh, when I do get other musicians to play with me, it's a treat 
but it's always I you know I kind of do a solo thing most of the time because economically it's yeah better oh. it's yeah. like yeah see if i gotta pay three other musicians that yep. means i ain't, yep. i ain't getting paid squat so <laughs> and that's the beauty of of recording an album in a hotel room you know ostensibly by yourself it's yeah, yeah. Uh, one good thing and bad thing about music lately is the the price of recording gear and what you can do on your own without a studio and yeah. without a record label and yeah. without all this stuff in between it's sort of democratized music yeah that i can have be mixed, bad too i have yeah, I, yeah. Say, I, I have mixed feelings about that i think back in the day um the record companies kind of acted as quality control yes a lot of times and um but then you know they kept they kept people out of the club too it yeah was they were like gatekeepers you, yeah, yeah you know it's like yeah you're way too different you know, we you can't be on uh, our label so yeah that was bad but then again now there's just such a vast yeah. sea of yeah. recordings and places you can listen to music it it just all gets there's you know it's like um uh, cable tv and 100 channels yeah. and nothing's on yeah. kind of thing yeah. where back in the day you had three network channels and if, you know everybody was watching ed sullivan or everybody was right. watching right this and that you know and and, and yeah, now, it's a give and a take man i mean like one hand too you think about it record labels have always pretty notorious about making sure no money leaks through to the artist yeah but at the same time like you know they were actually selling physical copies of of a thing nowadays like streaming and all that stuff okay i guess m more of it gets to the artist but there's less of it to get there all right yeah, it's all watered down yeah yeah, yeah I, I i hope that um something will come along and you know somehow be the next big thing to where um that that can change somehow probably not in my lifetime but, I don't, <laughs> but uh yeah i mean you think about the history of of popular music and how records um you know and that really you know came about in the 20th century yeah yeah and you know the the and how you know the record companies developed and and were able to sell um records and and you know musicians actually made some money for a few decades but right yeah yeah, yeah. doesn't doesn't last forever so. right are there any songs that you consider to be just the pinnacle of songwriting or the pinnacle of recorded music is there and it doesn't have to be oh this is my one are there th songs mm. that when you think about it you're just like oh yeah that's a that's a well written song um i can't i don't know about any one but i can name a couple artists that yeah it just you know like bob dylan thinks an example of if you've got a good tune <laughs> you don't necessarily have to play guitar or play yeah. anything that great or you don't have to sing it that great yeah you know and a lot of people can i guess you can argue that dylan's got that attitude more than than a voice than a pretty voice he's just got that 
that attitude. Um, um, and lately I've been getting into uh, Randy Newman, I think yeah. you were saying. Um, how, um, yeah, some, uh, what was it? Um, I think it's going to rain today. Yeah. And some of Randy Newman's songs are just awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, Chris, Chris Farley. Yeah, it was awesome. You remember? But, uh, uh that song and guilty and uh a song that i've been actually wanting to learn called birmingham yeah they sometimes randy newman gets a little um they almost turn into show tunes sometimes yeah. <laughs> and in certain respects um but anyway yeah uh um and 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 one thing I wanted to point out in Randy Newman's songs, he does not he, he sings them like Randy Newman. Yeah. He does not and, and everybody that I've heard do the song Guilty, that's kind of a song that I've heard, you know, that a lot of people do. They oversing it. If you listen to his, the way he does it, he barely sings that song. Yeah. Because He's a pot, you know, he's saying I'm guilty to, you know, somebody and he's, you know, you're not going to go, I'm guilty. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you're going to be like feeling pretty blue and it's, pretty It's humbled down. and it's yeah. confessional. And, and yeah. he's, he's just, yeah, I'm guilty. Yeah. And you know, doesn't hold that note out and just, just speaks it almost. It's kind of like John Prine too, Yeah. you know? So these are the guys that I kind of, you know, would say they're, they're writing and uh, their style is, is cool with me. And I really like them. I mean, am I going back to the auth authenticity word again? Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. I also, I really enjoy too, when you perform, there's a lot of history that you talk about, history of the songs, the context of where they were written in. Yeah. And uh, it's very interesting. I mean, I, have you always been really interested about the context of a song and not just the song itself? Um, maybe. I, yeah. um, I was never that big of like a history buff, but... Once you'd start talking about music, um, then I, yeah, I really get into it. I, I, you know, I remember, uh, I used to read books about the Beatles. So I was really into, yeah, uh, their history yeah. and, uh, what made them different. And so when I got into the blues, I read all, uh, you know, a, a bunch of biographies, and uh, some of those stories, a lot of those stories kind of stuck in my head. And um, I just, yeah, I love giving the background of this. Um, um, I'm trying to think of a line. Uh, there's a line in a song that I wrote called uh, Running from the Delta. It's a story about Sunhouse. Uh, Sunhouse's relationship with Willie Brown and um, now just, I just blanked out. I got <laughs> <laughs> there's a line in it that says um, 
it talks about uh, Sunhouse being at Parchment Farm. Yeah. As he was in prison twice. Or he was in, he was thrown in Parchment, went to Parchment Farm for killing a man in self-defense, Yeah, he says. And that's why he kind of left the Delta. But, you know, he talks about Captain Jack at uh, Parchment Farm and who was the, the, you know, the boss man or whatever, you know, the guy that was in charge of the prisoners when they were working out in the fields. And, and uh, I think the line that I used was, uh, he write, he'll write his name up and down your back, meaning he had the whip and he would crack oh, the whip yeah. and, and, and beat your back till, you, you know, he wrote his name. Yeah. You know, and just, you know, that kind of thing and and what these guys went through. Yeah. I always say that blues music is, is uh, like a lot of traditional blues music is slow. I, I think um, Delta blues music in particular because, man, if you work 12 hours in a field all day. Worn out. And you come home and you're going to write a song or are you going to yeah. play play for some people you're not going to be like a bluegrass band right dun, 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 dun. yeah you're going to be like oh you're just not going to have easy. the energy for yeah, it yeah you're going to be taking it easy for sure yeah also i mean some of the places you've played and the people that you've run into yeah you can't play where you've played without picking up history and and all of that stuff uh yeah yeah that's it's awesome man it's awesome that you you know, going through the Mississippi, playing place like Shack Up Inn, Hambone Art Gallery, uh, Levon's, Iron Horse Grill. I mean, a lot of these places, are it's just in it. It's in those places. Yeah, and uh, a lot of those places are actually, a lot of those places in Clarksdale are owned by people from elsewhere. Yeah. But if you, if you hang around Clarksdale enough, you run into people and I ran into this um, friends with this guy named uh, Robert Birdsong, who's a local uh-huh. historian, and he has told me so much. I mean, so many stories that uh, I'm indebted to him, man, because he's um, he does these walking tours, like when yeah. the Duke Joint Festival goes on in April. He'll do like these walking tours, and uh, and um, I've I've sat down with him and just talked about you know things and things that i've read and i'll say you know what about this have you ever heard of this and uh, there was one particular instance that i said i knew i read in in howland wolf's biography that he met his mother here he had been kicked out of his home when he was 14 by his mother and uh, went to live with an uncle or something at first and then uh man he had a terrible childhood and uh, he, you know, long after he had been to Chicago and he was successful, he went back to Clarksdale and um, and somebody said they were in Wade's, Wade Walton's barbershop. And I'm telling the, Robert this, you know, this story. And I yeah. said, you know, I heard the story. I read the story that he's in Wade Walton's barbershop and, and a cop comes in there and says, well, you know, your mother lives right down the street here. And he said, no. And. And he went and met his mother, and um, uh, it went. It didn't go so well. She was kind of a religious zealot, and uh, and she basically 
disowned him for playing blues music, you know, the yeah. music of the devil. And anyway, Robert researched that, and he, the, one time, the next time I went down there, he walked me through. He said, uh -huh. this right here we used to be Wade Walton's barbershop. And he said he would have walked down this alley and into this other alley, and he said, this comes out on Issaquina Street, and he said, from what I know, the apartment buildings that his mother lived in used to be right here. And there was a vacant lot there. Now, oh, okay. but, you know, he's like back in the, um, it probably would have been the 50s. Uh, so, you know, she used to live right here. And this is what happened. And, and, and to tell you, to kind of finish the story, they met, they hugged, they, they hadn't seen each other in years. And... He took a uh, Howlin' Wolf took a five hundred dollar bill and slipped it into her pocket. Wow! And then, about you know, a few minutes later, she reached in her pocket and found that, and knew that he had put it in it, put that five hundred dollar bill in her pocket, and she took it out and threw it on the ground and spat on it, <sighs> and she said, "I will not have the devil's money," and turned around and walked away, <sighs> and he never saw his mother again. Wow. And uh, Hubert Sumlin says he that Howlin' Wolf cried all the way to Memphis. Oh, man. That's going to be my next song, Cried All the Way that to Memphis. That is great, right man. There. Yeah. You know, I, I am such a sucker for stories. Oh, yeah. Especially this. Uh, and, and you say you can go down there and there are people that will tell you stories and show you yeah. places. And yeah. I am such a sucker for that, man. Or, or even when you were talking about watching Paul McCartney or reading about the Beatles or reading these biographies. Yeah. Um, I love music so much, man, that there's nothing like hearing these stories, especially when it's a guy who, you know, knew the guy or bumped into a guy or the yeah. son of a guy. And that's so cool, man. Mm. So cool. Uh, before I let you get out of here, um, tell me some of these names that are signed on your guitar. Um, a lot of them people don't really know. I think the most famous one is Taj Mahal. Yeah. Had Taj Mahal sign it a couple of years ago. And, um, and that was at, um, uh, when we were all at John Hurt's, um, uh, granddaughter's place. It, that's where Mississippi John Hurt's house is now. Taj Mahal came there in October of 2019 and did a concert. Uh, him and um, Jesse Colin Young and um, I forget who else, Guy Davis and and some other people um, put on a show there, and it was you know in front of there were maybe 200 people there. Wow! So it was, it was just great, yeah, to see Taj Mahal in that setting. Um, and then um, I met Ramlin Jack Elliott at wow. um, one of the whispering beard festivals i think it was in 2012 uh when he signed but you can't hardly see that signature like a couple signatures have just disappeared they yeah. fade away or i've rubbed them off by playing um probably the most um, um well let's see who else I, ruthie foster signed it i opened for her uh, in 2014 or no 2017 um, a couple uh, called the Blues, oh, I forget their official name, Blues Duo. It's uh, uh, Ben and Valerie Turner. They're from New York. They they signed it because they were 
um, at the Mississippi John Hurt's place in, in when Taj Mahal played there. And I think they, yeah, they performed that night. And um, Chris Smither, who is a great influence of mine, I mean, that's where I kind of get the, the foot stomping um, rhythmic thing from him. Yeah. I've seen him numerous times. Um, uh, Mary Hurt, uh, John, uh, uh, John Hurt's granddaughter, she, I had her sign it. Jim Kreskin, who was a uh, folk guy, yeah, uh, the with the Jim Kreskin uh, Jug Band, which uh, Maria Moldauer was in, and Jeff Moldauer, uh, he signed it. Um, but I, I was going to say the first person to sign it, and I wish I still it, this uh, signature was still uh, visible, and it's kind of <laughs> long gone. Was John Hammond? Oh. John Hammond Jr., which I know he doesn't like to be called Jr. because right. uh, he it's John Paul Hammond, um, the uh, the son of the famous producer John Hammond, who discovered Bob Dylan and everybody from Billie Holiday to to uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan to uh, to Bob Dylan. Um, yeah. you know it's his son. But I saw him perform up in uh, P uh, was it, uh, Preble County, Eaton, Ohio, and got to talk to him and and got him to sign. And when he signed my guitar, he's like, "Why do you want? Why do you want my signature?" I said, "Oh man, yes, I said, yeah. Why wouldn't I the, want your signature? Yeah, why, you are the guy. I mean, this guy was at Bob Dylan's first recording session. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he uh, played with the band. Yeah, before they played with Bob Dylan." When they were like the Hawks, yeah, yeah, or, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, awesome. He gave he. Uh, I bought an album and he signed it. He's like, "That's Charlie Musselwhite's first studio <sighs> session, right there." Yeah, yeah. And just an incredible voice, incredible sense of the blues. You talk about stories. John Hammond can tell you stories all day long. You know, yeah. just of these. You know, meeting Sonny Boy Williamson, meeting uh, opening for Howlin' Wolf. Mm. Oh man. Mm. You know, talking, telling Jimi Hendrix that he should probably go to England, <laughs> you know, it would be a good idea for him to go to England. Yeah. Thanks, John. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, John Hammond Jr. for. No, yeah. Yeah. No, no. 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 <laughs> for, for telling Jimmy. That was. Yeah. That worked out, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Man, you got a song you can share for us today, John? Sure. Um, I'll do. Uh, the uh, first song is called "Going to Louisiana," and yep. um, the, the, at least the second part of the song is about a story that I read uh, about Sonny Boy Williamson, uh, Rice Miller. Uh, his name his name was he was born actually um, Alec Ford, and then um, his mother married uh, a man named Miller, and his nickname became Rice Miller. And then when he went to Chicago, he changed his name to Sonny Boy Williamson. Like the like the the, the first harmonica player, Sonny Boy Williamson, number one, uh, Rice Miller went to New York and just said, well, I'm Sonny Boy Williamson now. <laughs> so he became Sonny Boy Williamson number two. Um, it, but he used to play the King Biscuit Flower Hour with uh, Robert uh, Lockwood Jr., who uh, whose mother was involved romantically involved with uh, robert johnson so robert lockwood 
uh, kind of called Robert Johnson his stepdaddy. Yeah. And uh, you know, learned a lot of stuff. Uh, actually, he knew songs that Robert Johnson never recorded. Wow. Um, but anyway, those, those two characters, uh, Robert Lockwood Jr. and uh, Sonny Boy Williamson, would play in the Delta. And they would. They both lived in Helena, Arkansas. So they'd ha so they'd have to beat it to the river like uh, late at night. You know, they'd have to be to the river by midnight because the ferry that that took them across uh, would close at midnight. And one night they uh, they were running late, and Robert Lockwood had kind of a fast car, and um, and they went. You know, ran into the police, and the police knew they were speeding, started chasing them. And uh, they actually beat the police to the river, got on the ferry, went across, and the ferry operator said, well, you know, it's midnight, I'm going to close, I'm yeah. not going to go back and get the police so they can come <laughs> here and arrest you. So um, that's that story. And just a side note, that ferry operator, I mentioned his name in the song yeah. because his name was um, uh, Jenkins. Um, no, I can't remember <laughs> Not Walter Jenkins, but uh, Harold Jenkins. Harold Jenkins, yeah. And Harold Jenkins Sr. He had a son named Harold Jenkins Jr. And yeah. if you uh, know your country music, Harold Jenkins Jr. Uh, became the country singer uh, Conway Twitty. Okay, kind of an interesting uh, tidbit. So I put. I always wanted to write a song about that, and the whole song's not really about that. But I, I at least uh, I managed to get it into the last couple verses about that story. And so that's uh, uh, going to Louisiana. Very cool, man. Let's hear it. Johnny Lee stole his woman away from his best friend. Son of a gun got lucky in there when he stole him back again. Lord, I'm going to Louisiana, going to Louisiana, going to Louisiana, ride that southern train. Gonna get that sugar cane. Had a job with the railroad back before the war. My breakfast in Atlanta, my dinner in Baltimore. Lord, I'm going to Louisiana, going to Louisiana, going to Louisiana, ride that southern dream. Gonna get that sugar cane. Sixty-one. There's a police man. He's been chasing us since Lula with a pistol in his hand. Lord, I'm going to Louisiana. I'm going to Louisiana. I'm going to Louisiana. I'm at that southern dream. 
Gonna get that sugar cane Yeah Well we saw old Harold Jenkins And we took that ferry ragging And we left that Mississippi highway man Sitting on the other side I'm going to Louisiana Going to Louisiana Going to Louisiana That's the dream We're gonna get that sugar cane Very good, man. I like that one. I do too. I really like that one. Is that a new one? Yeah, that's a newer one. Excellent. Before you go, want to leave us with one more song? Sure. This is a song called Fannie Lou Hamer. Fannie Lou Hamer was a civil rights uh, activist or became a civil rights activist in the 60s because she was a sharecropper living in Ruleville, Mississippi. And uh, I, of course, Ruleville's right along uh, Route 49, right? I mean, you go down from Clarksdale, Mississippi, you go south on 49, and you run into so many iconic towns. Uh, and Parchment Farm is on that road. Uh, Indianola, where B.B. King's from, is on that road. And then uh, Ruleville, uh, where uh, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer was from. And actually, she's buried there. Um Anyway, she was a she was a sharecropper, and they tried to reg her and other other uh, black folks in the area tried to register to vote in the early '60s. I want to say it was 1962. I could be wrong. They tried to register to vote, um, and they had to go to Indianola uh, to to register and and the way the Jim Crow's laws were still working in the early 60s, they had to take a literacy test and uh -huh. all this stuff that took hours. Yeah. And then they, they would make the test so hard that they couldn't pass it and all right. this stuff. And, um, oh, man, I could go on and on. But she, let's just say she had a really hard time uh, registering to vote. And then she testified before the Democratic Credentials Committee in 1964, and uh, Martin Luther King testified uh, uh, too, and they they uh, televised all this. And when Fannie Lou Hamer got up there and started telling her story, which is kind of what this song's about, yeah, uh, how hard it was to register to vote. Uh, President Johnson at the time called a press conference just to get her off of TV. Wow. He just wanted, he did not want her, he didn't want the American public to hear her story. So he called a press conference and everybody thought he was going to announce his uh, running mate for the upcoming election. And uh, he just, yeah, I, he, I think he wound up saying, no, this was the anniversary of, 
of something or another, and uh, you know, so everybody knew it was just a BS. Oh, just a diversion. Uh, yeah. yeah, just a diversion oh. to get her off the TV. Anyway, uh, song called Fannie Lou Hamer, and uh, and um, I, I guess I'll say that I'll tell you this: that it says uh, a Mississippi appendectomy, which was um, which had happened to her which was a uh, slang term for uh, a medical um, procedure. Well, it was sterilization basically Ugh. done to poor folks and especially poor black people uh, of the time. Uh, they would go in for a routine uh, operation, say, you know, an appendectomy. Yeah. And while they were in there, they would, you know, make do the procedure uh, to basically sterilize them so they couldn't have any children and she went in i think um she had like a tumor or something on her yeah. ovaries or something and she went in and they basically you know had and done the procedure the sterilization procedure and uh, she didn't have any ch any children at the time so she couldn't yeah. have children after that point but she uh, she geez. wound up adopting but um anyway uh yeah song called Fannie Lou Hamer all right, thank you, man. Let's hear it. Fanny Lou Hammer's got something to say. Something to say, Lord, something to say They took them cameras and they took them away From Mr. LBJ They took the cameras away, Lord Sign right across that land. They told the bus driver got to pay that fan. Mr. Bus driver, you cross the color land. Oh. Sending Mississippi ain't ready for that, ain't ready for that, ain't ready for that. Had to leave my home, had to leave that shack, had to leave that shack, can't ever go back. But my mama, what's it done to me? It got my Mississippi up and decked to me. Got my Mississippi appendectomy. me Got my Mississippi appendectomy. me Patrol 
This is what he said. This is what he said. This is what he said. Come back, you wish. Make you wish you was dead. Make you wish you was dead. Make you wish you was dead, Lord. Black girl screams. Can you say yes, sir? I don't know what you mean. I don't know what you mean. I don't know what you mean, Mississippi appendectomy. Oh, mama, what they done to me? Got my Mississippi appendectomy. Got my Mississippi appendectomy, Lord. Well, yeah, man. Thank you for for coming on this. It was wonderful hearing you talk, man. I lo I love your music. Thank um, you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much, John. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John Ford. I really love his music and his style. Uh, you got to see him live. The way he delivers those songs, it's incredible. I'd love to see him on a bill with my last guest, Robert Lighthouse, actually. I feel like those two would get along really well. Been really having a great time interviewing singer-songwriters on this podcast. Hopefully you've had a good time listening to it, too. Um, for the time being, I'm not going to be doing any of the showcases. Got a couple things that have been keeping me pretty busy. It's a one-man operation over here at Songs of the Unsung. Keep looking for videos from the last showcase coming out, and hopefully I can get around to doing these podcasts weekly. Until then, you can find me at songsoftheunsung.com. I have a Facebook page, Instagram, YouTube. A couple clicks from you helps us a lot. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.